This morning, it's truly a privilege and uh, a joy to introduce a guest speaker that we're having this morning. Um, Austin is one of our cross-cultural workers, and um, if you don't know what a cross-cultural worker is at this point, um, ask the person next to you, I'm sure they know. Um, He's actually a professor in the Middle East. Uh, He has a PhD in Old Testament from Wheaton University, which in... uh, my realm, that is a very prestigious degree that he has. Um, his dissertation was actually in the book of Exodus, and so to say he's an expert in Exodus would be correct. Um, Austin is humble enough where I doubt he would say that, and um, actually maybe educated enough to say that, but um, let me just give you just a little bit of who Austin is when it comes to intellect and, uh, and study. He teaches Old Testament in Arabic. So, let me just paint that for you. Old Testament, Hebrew, he's teaching that to Arabic speakers in Arabic. Um, But more than all of that, as I said, first service, Austin is a personal and close friend of not just me, but our church and a beloved brother here at Country Oaks. Um, In fact, one of my oldest friends, he... uh, was in college group with me before we both were married here at Country Oaks, before he went on to all of his studies, and um, he's also the reason why we are in the book of Exodus. Um, God ultimately directed me, I believe, to Exodus mainly through Austin, who uh, I had a chance to read the uh, like cliff notes of his dissertation on Exodus, and got me super excited a few years ago about the book of Exodus, but to be honest, was very intimidated to enter into the book of Exodus and preach it uh, for a number of reasons. But last year I heard a podcast where he was getting interviewed on the name of the Lord, which he's going to be talking about today. And it just encouraged me in my heart saying, hey, we we as a church need to go through the book of Exodus. So with that all said, if you can give Austin a warm welcome this morning. morning, church. You're looking beautiful today. Let me just say that. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be in community. I love this community. And we just always feel supported. So praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for this church. Okay, guys, I want to ask you a question. Ready? Do you believe, do you believe that Yahweh is a God of wrath and judgment while Jesus is a God of love and forgiveness? Do you ever feel that way when you read the Old Testament? I mean, I mean, really, think about a worldwide flood. Think about the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, the conquest of Canaan, and the harsh words that God often spoke through the prophets. Now set that against Jesus Christ's self-sacrifice Paul's amazing teaching on love in 1 Corinthians, and for example, the book of 1 John. If you're like me, you don't want to think that Yahweh was a God of wrath and Jesus is a God of love. But it's hard to shake that off when you read certain parts of the Old Testament. And today we get to go through one of those hard parts of the Old Testament, and that's the plagues. So we need to talk about that. We will be covering today the first nine plagues. However, the tenth plague is very significant and requires its own 
sermons, plural noun there, sermons. Um, so let's start by talking about the specifics. The, the, let's talk about the specific harshness of each plague. First of all, imagine, as an Egyptian, your mighty, huge Nile River and all sources of water turning miraculously into blood. That not only made the water undrinkable, but it also made the water unclean. What I mean is ancient Near Easterners associated blood with death and with slaughtering animals in in a temple of some kind. And here, your Nile River is covered in blood. Secondly, thinking about the plagues, you have nasty warded frogs that appear and crawl all over. It says they even crawled into your ovens and mixing bowls. So I'm imagining waking up one morning to have your flatbread and there's like frog parts sticking out of it as you spread your hummus on it. It's like gross. Um, Really gross. Thirdly, gnats. Little annoying gnats arise from the dust and blanket your land. Right after that, flies crawl around and they're and they buzz all over everything, creating a second blanket of pests in the land. Fifthly, all the livestock of Egypt died. Now remember, livestock, that's like horses and donkeys, camels, sheep, and goats. These were not just pets. It's hard enough to lose a pet sometimes, but livestock were their machines, those were their money, and those were their food. The Lord wiped them out. Sixthly, um, imagine Moses' brother Aaron taking soot from like an oven, an ash, and throwing a handful in the air. And what happens is all the people got festering boils on their skin. Festering boils, you know, like like pus, gross things, blood, rashes. Um, The magicians couldn't even come before Pharaoh. Um, It was so bad. Seventh, hail thunder and fire fall from the heaven from heaven and destroy all the crops in Egypt it also killed some animals and some people it was that bad um, eighthly locusts locusts blew in from the western desert the lord sent a west wind and these locust swarms devoured chewed up any green thing that was left locust swarms are a real thing in this part of africa it's something that happened but this one was divinely sent for destruction. And finally, for all this harshness, Yahweh sent darkness. A darkness over the land of Egypt for three days. It says it was a darkness that could be felt. We have never experienced anything like this. Nothing close to it. So my question, don't these horrifying plagues confirm that Yahweh was a God of wrath and punishment? Well, let me say this. Scripture does not present the plagues as the reaction of an angry God who just sort of flew off the handle. Um, Genesis 15 contains some important words from the Lord to Abraham. Abraham lived hundreds of years before Moses and any of this drama happened. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. So the plagues were a long prepared judgment against a sinful nation whose iniquity had reached, let's say, critical mass. God's long prepared and his appropriate judgment here is sort of like an earthly father who warns his child, warns his child, warns his child, and finally, in a controlled way, punishes him. This judgment, the plagues, is not like an earthly father who just slaps his child across the face when that child annoys him. No, the Lord was patient and controlled even as he stretched out his hand in judgment. Also, the plagues were not just a one-sided sort of unilateral attack from Yahweh. Remember the role of Pharaoh. Remember what Nathan taught last week. The king of Egypt was clearly opposed to Israel and to the God of Israel. And his stubbornness is what caused the plagues to drag on. The entire nation suffered from the choices of one powerful man. And Pharaoh's stubbornness is particularly clear in the plague's narrative. I forgot to mention, we're sort of covering like from 7.14, Exodus 7.14, to the end of chapter 10. But in these chapters, Pharaoh is uh, especially presented as stubborn. At the beginning or the end of every single report, every single plague, Scripture says either that Pharaoh hardened his heart, or the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, or simply that Pharaoh's heart was hard. What do these words mean? It just means that Pharaoh's heart was originally hard. It started that way. He was already inclined to oppose God and his people, and the Lord let him go. Let him go or handed him over to the sinful inclination. And away he went. Pharaoh got so deep onto this path that he refused to change his mind, even when his servants told him to release Israel. Let's look at this verse in the story. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So if Pharaoh had chosen to repent, then God would have spared the nation such suffering. But he didn't repent. Okay, so the Lord was patient and controlled in his judgment, and he also responded interactively with the the choices of Pharaoh. But maybe you're still wondering whether this God named Yahweh focused more on punishment um, than the God we read about in the Gospels. After all, all, if if there truly is a difference in God's actions and character between the Testaments, this would affect how we pray. It would affect how we sing. It would affect how we read the Old Testament, how we feel about the Old Testament, and especially how we understand our salvation and how we understand the essence of God. So we have to resolve this struggle and figure out what does the Old Testament say about the name Yahweh. By God's grace, by his sovereign design, 
um, one of the major themes of these three and a half chapters is the knowledge of the name Yahweh. In fact, I believe that the Lord's desire, the Lord's initiative to make his name known was just as important as him expressing his judgment against Egypt. Knowledge of his name with judgment. But let's ask first, before we get into that, why? Why is God concerned to make his name known at this point in history? Plagues don't happen all the time. Why at this point in history? One reason is that the ten plagues are a showdown. It's kind of like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Showdown. In both stories, there is a clear battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and a false god. It's clear to me that um, in reading the narrative of the plagues, the magicians of Egypt had demonic power energizing. After all, if you read the story, the magicians were in fact able to turn water into blood. They did that. And they produced frogs out of nothing. They did that by demonic power. It's also possible these demons working were the same demons that sort of um, embodied the Egyptian gods. And there's spiritual power, wicked spiritual power behind it. Also, Nathan's reminded us that Pharaoh was considered a god and worshipped as a god by the Egyptians. So here you have Pharaoh, you have demonized magicians, and they are resisting openly the God of Israel. It's a direct challenge to God's reputation. Therefore, the Lord arose and met that challenge. Um, At the end of the tenth plague, the Lord even says this about the challenge. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So how? How did, how did this connect? How did the Lord judge these so-called gods? Well, for example, the supreme god at this time um, was a god uh, pronounced something like Amun-Ra, Amun-Ra. And the Egyptians believed that the sun represented the supreme god, Amun-Ra. But what happened in the ninth plague? The ninth plague. The Lord covered land of the Egyptians, the land of Amun-Ra, in total darkness for three days. So, he was executing judgments on the gods, and early on in the showdown, the magicians, the demonized magicians, they got it. Read this. Read what they say after the third plague is happening. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So in this showdown, as we all know, the Lord clearly had the stronger hand. In fact, he even had the stronger finger. One note before we get into the text, Um, you know this, but I'm reminding you, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, um, is a substitute word 
over a long tradition that covers over a proper name, which I am today pronouncing Yahweh. I don't know if that's the way we say it, but the Lord and Yahweh are the same being, the same God. That's why I use the terms interchangeably, and so does Nathan. Same God, okay? So, the battles between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, these battles and the plagues became sort of like a megaphone through which God proclaimed his name. But did you know that it was actually Pharaoh who initiated this showdown? Pharaoh initiated it. He was the first to introduce the theme of the knowledge of the name Yahweh. Exodus 5.2 makes this clear. Nathan has talked about it very well in its context, but that words of Pharaoh are part of this larger plagues context. When Pharaoh, uh, when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh for the first time, let's listen to Pharaoh's very stubborn reply. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Did you know that Exodus 5.2 is the first verse in the entire Bible where you have a verb, no, no, with the proper name, the Lord, or Yahweh. There, this does not happen in Genesis anywhere, where you have somebody knowing, and the object of the knowing is Yahweh. This isn't there. It's not a theme. It's not a concern. So this is the first time that the concept appears, someone talking about knowing Yahweh. But Pharaoh says it in the negative. He says, who is the Lord? I do not know Yahweh. Here he's emphasizing how insignificant Yahweh is in his eyes, as if to say Yahweh is not worth my attention. So, God responded to the challenge. The ten plagues became Pharaoh's personal education and knowledge How do I know this? Well, remember this pairing of like the verb know and having Yahweh as its object, knowing Yahweh? Um, let's see where this pair occurs after Exodus 5 2, after Pharaoh's words. So let's go to Exodus 6 7. This is in the middle of that poem where Nathan had taught you about the poem in general and then adoption and redemption. Within that um, redemption part, the Lord says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay, look again. We need to focus on an interesting expression there. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. How, how, how will they know that? When the Lord saves Israel from Egypt, that's how. That's how they'll know that it's Yahweh that did it. Um, why say it in this way? Because God in Egypt was acting in a very public way. This wasn't hidden. This wasn't a burning bush moment between him and one person. This was public. And many, many people got to witness the plagues and the actions. And so they could ascribe or sort of put onto Yahweh these events and say, that was Yahweh. 
any Egyptian or any Israelite could say, I know that Yahweh did that. And knowing that Yahweh did it means that Moses didn't do it, or Pharaoh didn't do it, the magicians didn't do it, Amun-Ra didn't do it, it was Yahweh. And actually, if we continue our study of knowing Yahweh, that phrase, within the plague's narrative, there are eight times where the phrase know Yahweh or know that Yahweh or know that the Lord did something, it's found eight times in the plagues. So I have a few slides to show that um, paired with the, the plagues where the phrases occur. So let me explain the verses a little bit to show you that this is a major theme in the plagues narrative. First, before any plagues even happen, God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That's Exodus 7.5. The Egyptians will know that the Lord was the one who stretched out his hand. Yes, notice, God was making his name known even to the enemy of Israel. It was Yahweh who stretched out his hand. No other God could Okay, Exodus 8.10, Moses says this to Pharaoh. Oh, nope, sorry. Exodus 7.17, bottom left. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. So the miracle of changing the water into blood was done by Yahweh. No other god could claim that. In Exodus 8.10, Moses says something to Pharaoh in response to Pharaoh's sort of jabs. He says, be it as you may, so that you may know that there is no one like God. Yahweh does not compare to other beings. He is in a class by himself. There's only one being that deserves to be called God, and that is Yahweh. Exodus 8.22 concerning the flies. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Yahweh showed his power by separating Israel from Egypt. He is a God that not only has power, but he can control his power and protect his chosen people. climax of this theme in the plagues narrative is found in Exodus 9, 14-16. Nathan has read this before, and for good reason. They are rich, rich verses. And these verses explain what I had said earlier. What I said earlier is that the Lord's desire to make his name known was just as important as revealing his wrath or judgment against Egypt's sin. Here's how it says it. For this time... I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed 
where in all the earth. Notice that God could have destroyed the Egyptians entirely, but the Lord's goal was not to destroy the Egyptians entirely. Listen, God did not want the enemies of Israel dead. Not one them. He wanted them to recognize and confess his name. Yes, the plagues were harsh. They were hard. But Yahweh dragged them on in order to show more of his power, in order to make the meaning of his name clear and known. Even in the Old Testament, the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. He delights that they turn from their ways, that they repent. I am taking that from Ezekiel 18.23. The Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. Side note. God does show clear mercy in this story. If you read... Exodus 9, 20, and 21, you're going to learn something. The Lord at this time, in this plague, gave a warning. He didn't just send it. He said, tomorrow there's going to be hail. So look what happens. Then, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, whoever feared the word of the Lord, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And guess what? They died. There was a possibility for Pharaoh's servants to fear the word of the Lord and be spared this judgment. But unfortunately, we read ahead, um, Moses tells us uh, the hearts of Pharaoh's servants. In Exodus 9.30, Moses says, But as for you, Pharaoh, and your servants, I know that you do not yet servants of Pharaoh chose to follow their master in his stubbornness. But don't forget, their choice was real, and God's mercy to them was real too. Okay, let's go back to the slide with the different occurrences of knowing and Yahweh. Um, Exodus 9.29, Moses says this, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. Why? So that you may know that the earth is Amun-Raz. Oh, sorry, made a mistake. The earth is the Lord's. Okay? Moses would stop the hail to show that Yahweh and no other God owned and controlled the earth. In the words of the psalm, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Exodus 10.2, it continues. A word for God's people. You may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs um, I have done among them. That you may know that I am the Lord. The revelation of the name was also for future generations. God was expecting and intending his reputation would spread through time as his people witnessed to his actions. Um, Exodus 11.7, I love how this begins, right before the death of the firstborn. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. 
that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay, are you a little sick of hearing this? You may know I am the Lord. This is God's emphasis throughout the plagues. Um, Just like in Exodus 8.22, Yahweh showed his power, his name, by separating Israel from Egypt. Okay, so, now, consider the meta-narrative, the big picture, or even the Exodus story, the plague story. Consider these eight expressions, know that I am the Lord, consider them in light of what Pharaoh said and how he initiated the showdown. What did he say? He said, who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh. Well, Yahweh has answered. Yahweh has brought Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel to a place where they have to say, I know that Yahweh did those signs and wonders. It is not wrong to conclude, or it is right to conclude, that the world world came to know God as Yahweh in a special way in the days of Moses and through the Ten Plagues. When we step back and see the big picture, Genesis and Exodus, we can conclude that Exodus marks a new stage in God's dealing with humankind, or it marks a new stage in the knowledge of God's name, Yahweh. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not privileged to see this glorious proclamation. God did not make himself known to them as Yahweh as he was made known to Moses and his generation. So the plagues showed Israel, Egypt, and us that the name Yahweh refers to a God who has power over all the domains of nature. This Yahweh struck Egypt while showing concern for his people by separating them and sparing them from judgment. This Yahweh also showed mercy to the Egyptians and warned them, and anyone who feared him could take shelter. That is, Yahweh is just, powerful, but Yahweh is merciful. The plagues are another jump forward in our knowledge of this name, this person, Yahweh. But it's not the last, guys. It's not the last. This picture is not yet complete. And so please pay attention in the fall when Nathan continues, and especially when he reaches um, the cleft in the rock in Exodus 34. We're going to learn so much and worship the Lord together with what we learn from that chapter. We still have more to learn in this book. But I don't want to like end this sermon in a story that happened 3,500 years ago. I'm always a little afraid when I preach from the Old Testament that we come away saying, that was a great history lesson. I I learned a lot about history, about what happened 3,500 years ago. And, um, but those names are very hard and these places are far away. And the preacher was using past tense verbs, you know, cool, God's sovereign, but what? Okay. So I don't want anyone to get stuck in the BC nature of this text before Christ. Don't just get stuck there. All of this talk about the name Yahweh is begging, begging a practical question. Maybe you don't know what it is, maybe you do. But here's how I'm saying it. Should we use the name Yahweh? Take a drink of water for dramatic effect. Should we use the name Yahweh? Okay. I mean, after all, 
I've used the name a ton in this sermon, and Nathan's used it a ton. But what about our worship? What about our prayer? What about our witness? I think, don't, don't actually answer, because I'm going to give you an answer, and if, if our answers are different, I'll feel bad. But um, my short answer is actually no. My short answer is no. And I want to explain why. Um, yes. Four reasons why I think we do not need to use the name Yahweh in our worship. Number one, the name Yahweh is not used in the New Testament at all, in the New Testament. There's a hint of it in Revelation 19. I have emphasized on the slide that the saints are worshiping before the throne of God near the end of the drama of Revelation. They sing out the Old Testament word, hallelujah. Hallelujah means, we've always been taught, praise the Lord. Technically, it's praise Yah. Yah is like a shortened form of the full name Yahweh. Sometimes in the Old Testament, they shortened the name, not Yahweh, but Yah. So, hallelujah, praise Yah. Praise Yah is what they're saying, which means praise the Lord. Yah, the Lord, same being. But that's not even the full form of the word. It's just three letters, Yah. Um, and so the Greek doesn't have the name Yahweh. Every other New Testament verse, or even quotations of the Old Testament in New Testament Greek, use a substitute word over the proper name Yahweh. And that substitute word is, guess what? The Lord. In English, we use the Lord to cover the name Yahweh. In Spanish, it's Señor. In Arabic, it's Arab. It's all these words that mean Lord. And it covers the proper name. So my conclusion is, if this covering of the proper name in the New Testament is so complete, if Jesus and the apostles did not use the name Yahweh, we don't need to use it. We don't need to. Reason number two, why I think we don't need to use the name. If you use the name Yahweh consistently, it's possible, not 100%, but it's possible that it could start to separate God's character in your mind. Separate God's character in the Old Testament and the New. Here's what I mean. I don't think it's I don't think it's best if we translate in our English Bibles the Lord as Yahweh, writing it in. Why? Because if we did so, then let's see. We would have an Old Testament, very big Old Testament, where there's a main character and his name is YHWH or YAHWEH, Yahweh. And this, this Yahweh is acting and speaking and blessing and judging in the Old Testament. And then you turn the page to Matthew, and suddenly you have a God, or a character, let's say, named Jesus, who acts and speaks the words of God. In my opinion, it's possible that having a two-name reality in here, a Yahweh in the Old and a Jesus in the New, could lead us to think we sort of have two gods, sort of have a struggle in God's character. You have Yahweh, the name of the God of the Old Testament, the God of wrath and punishment. Um, but then you have Jesus, the God of the New Testament, the God of love and forgiveness. And I don't like this at all. I don't like this situation at all. Even in our unfinished study of Exodus, we have seen how much the Lord is merciful and gracious and just. Um, and I don't believe Yahweh is a God of wrath and punishment only. He is balanced like he is in the New Testament. 
And wouldn't you say the same about the Lord Jesus? Sometimes we like to think Jesus was, was all love. But that means we kind of forgot the part where he like made a whip and drove people out of the temple. And then the same Jesus is coming again in the book of Revelation with a sword on a white horse to wage war on the sinful armies of the world. Like Jesus has the same character. He is merciful and he is just. We need to accept that we are reading about the exact same God in the Old and the New Testament. Okay? Side note. Um, if you have the opportunity to teach the Old Testament, to talk about the Old Testament in a context, you'll probably, you will want to use the name Yahweh. Because it shows that it's a proper name. And it's Yahweh and it's not Amun-Ra, it's not Baal, it's not whatever. Nathan uses it in the sermons and so do I. There's absolutely no sin or error or problem in doing so. There isn't. I'm not legalistic about that. But I think we often lose more than we gain when we consistently use this, um, let's say, this old name. Side note number two. I have changed my opinion on this matter ten years ago. So, that means ten years ago, I thought, no, we should translate it as Yahweh, and we should use it in our worship and such. Um, I only tell you that to encourage humility on this topic. It's important, but it is secondary. It's not about Jesus Christ coming, dying for our sins, being raised, and believing in him. It's different. So please be humble. Don't be dogmatic. Um, If I changed my mind ten years ago, that either means I was wrong the first time, or I'm wrong now, or I was wrong both times. Um, It's possible. So um, there's a lot of grace in the way Christians disagree about opinions. So much grace. But here's my reasons, you know. Reason number three, I should have said this earlier. Yahweh or Yahweh or however we want to make it come out of our mouth, that is probably not how the name was pronounced originally. And I'm sorry to do this. I really, this is not my character, but I don't like to be against the grain on things that everyone does and uses. But, um, if you notice, though, if you read, like, a commentary or a theology book from, like, let's say 150 years ago, the name of God in the Old Testament was Jehovah. English speakers, Europeans, were convinced 150 years ago that the way we say the name was Jehovah, or maybe Yehovah. And that's what's in all the books. There's no one writing out. All the books say Jehovah. Um, in Arabic, interestingly, Arab Christians pronounce the name Yahweh. Yahweh. Not Yahweh. Yahweh. Um, I had a professor say Yahweh. And as for the name Yahweh that we're used to saying, this is a guess. It's a guess by scholars today. And it's sort of the common, it's the reigning sort of idea that we think for reasons that they have. Um, But it is a guess. And not to be nasty, but I think it's probably wrong be a wrong guess. Um, I won't go into the reasons, but I did write about this, and I have a document if you want it. Just find me, and I'll send you the document with very boring notes about manuscripts and footnotes that explain why I think Yahweh is the wrong guess. Um, But forget the details. Forget how to make the name work in our mouths. We, we, the church, have inherited something quite shocking. It's still shocking. I can't get around it. I have not explained it. We we do not even know the exact way to pronounce God's name in the Old Testament. 
we say Yahweh, but it's a guess. Um, we know there's this Yah at the beginning of the word, but they used to say Jehovah. Arab Christians say Yahweh. There's Yahweh. We don't know. We don't know. I don't know. We lost it. Um, and we can only get kind of close to the original form of the name, but I don't think I don't think we'll ever figure it out. Um, but we don't need to be afraid, even though I'm kind of shocked by it. Um, God's not afraid. God ordained this. God ordained that the name would be lost. So I don't encourage you to um, go on YouTube and listen to the next guy who claims he's found the form of the name. And there are people on YouTube that say that. Don't get anxious about figuring out the precise form. In fact, sometimes I imagine that the Lord is watching his children and smiling down at us as we're sitting around saying, Jehovah, Yahweh, 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 and in a perfectly loving way, God is saying, oh, they're so cute, they're so cute. Nice try, guys. Nice try. But why? But why do I think God is so, let's say, why do I think God is so relaxed about the loss of his Old Testament? That's because of reason number four. Why I think we do not need to use the name Yahweh in our worship or anything, before God has given us another name. Remember this. The Lord, Adonai, Senor, all these things, these are substitute words for the real name that we've lost the exact form. We don't know what it is. And this substitution, I don't have time to go into details, is like a 2,000-year-old Jewish tradition. It started with the Jews between the Testaments. They started avoiding pronouncing whatever it was, Yahweh, and they said Lord over it. Adonai in Hebrew, but they said Lord over it. They started reading Lord over the word. And so that's the tradition we're stuck with as the name, the proper name disappeared. We're stuck with Lord. And that's kind of lame because we lose a proper name that makes direct reference to Yahweh. It's Yahweh. And we get a title like Lord. In theory, I could call some, anyone I wanted Lord, but I can't call anyone I wanted Yahweh. It's a name. So that's kind of lame. So we should be sad. However, I have claimed God has given us another name. What do I mean? This is best shown in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It's a great section of scripture. It requires a few sermons. In the context of Philippians, it's encouraging the church towards humility, the mind of Christ, who being in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but he emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant, and he was obedient to the Father, even to death, being in the nature of God. So, let's go to the exciting second half of this passage. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name name, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that, what? Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted after his humbling and death on a cross. God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What if 
we made a slight change, but an important change, and in my opinion, a correct change, and we changed the wording in one spot. There it is. Underline. I think this is correct. I don't think I'm making this up. I think others would agree with me. What if we said, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. All caps. Jesus Christ is the Lord. What does that mean? That Jesus is master? Yes. And so, so much more. So much more than master. Jesus Christ is the Lord. This confession occurs in two other important verses in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul's teaching about spiritual gifts. He says, no one can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, to believe the truth about Jesus, the Spirit has to energize you. You have to believe in him. How do you express that? You say Jesus is the Lord. Um, and then you all know Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is central Christian confession here. Jesus Christ is the Lord. So let's do the logic here. Um, The Lord, Adonai, Arab, Senor, whatever, the Lord is the one true God. You read the Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament is bringing people to the confession that the Lord is the one true God. Baal is not, and Amun-Ra is not. The Lord, he is God. But then Jesus Christ is the Lord. What does that mean logically? Jesus is God. Jesus is the one true God. And that's exactly what this verse is about. So much more than that Jesus is master. So listen, my brothers and sisters. God has given us another name. The name of Jesus. The name Jesus has the same function for us, the church, as the name Yahweh did for the people of Israel. You might say that as this proper name was disappearing, God gives us the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And it takes the place of that name. Same God, but you know, the name takes the place. So, pray in the name of Jesus. Sing the name of Jesus. Proclaim the name of Jesus to yourself and to the lost. And that day when every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is the Lord, it says God the Father gets glory. That's deep. I hope that causes you to stop a little. Is that strange? Every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth comes to the confession that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Lord. So all these people are praising him. Who gets the glory? The Father. How does that happen? Um, I'm not entirely sure, and I love that it's mysterious because it just makes me worship God. But one thing I can say is that it's true because we worship one God. And this one God is the Lord of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They share the name of God. They share the character of God. They share the glory of God. The Lord is God, Father, Son, The God of the ten plagues is our God. He is our lot. We have him. We don't have anyone else. For all the difficulties in figuring out his character between the Testaments, he's ours. He's our inheritance. He will be the one ruling over his kingdom for eternity. He's ours. 
He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. He who praises the Son has praised the Father. So church, beautiful church, press on to know the Lord. Acknowledge him in all your ways. And make him known until the glorious day said by the prophets, when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters If you have any questions, find me afterwards because some of these topics are confusing. But let's close in prayer. Oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you, we thank you, we are so glad to be together and to hear each other singing out praise to you for all that you have done, not just 3,500 years ago in giving us revelation of your name, but also in sending your Son who is obedient died and was exalted with the name above all names. Please give us your power and grace to exalt and sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.